Chapter Thirty of the Mountain Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Natalie Myers. The Mountain Girl by Payne Erskine. Chapter Thirty, in which Cassandra goes to Queensderry and takes a drive in a pony carriage. Glad to be borne away from the city and out through fresh green fields and past pretty church-spired villages, alone in the compartment, Cassandra comforted herself with her baby, playing with him until he dropped to sleep, when she made a bed for him on the car seat with rugs, and taking out her purse, began to count her remaining resources. Her bill at the hotel had appalled her, so much to pay to stay only a night. What would David say? But he had told her to use the money as she liked, and now she was here. There was nothing else to do. Laboriously she computed the amount in English money, and, reckoned thus, her dollars and cents seemed to shrink and vanish. Still, more than half remained of what she had brought with her, and she viewed the matter calmly. The shadows fell long over the smooth greensward as she arrived in the village of Queensderry, and was driven to a small inn, the only house of entertainment in the place. She was given a pleasant room overlooking fields and orchards and bright gardens, and the sight rested her eyes, and still further calmed her troubled heart. She would rest tonight, and tomorrow all would be well. Never had food tasted better to her than the supper served in her pretty room, toast in a silver rack, and fresh butter, such as David loved, and curds and whey, and gingerbread, and a small jar of marmalade. She ate seated in the window, looking out over the sweet English landscape in the warm twilight, the breeze stirring the white curtains, her little son in her lap gurgling and smiling up at her, and her heart with David, wherever he might be. Slowly the dusk veiled all, and one star glimmered above the slender church spire. A pretty maid brought candles and a book in which she was asked to write her name. She was the landlady's daughter, and looked wholesome and bright. Cassandra glanced in her face as she set the candles down and took up the pen mechanically. "'Mother says, will you sign here, please?' "'Yes.' Cassandra turned the leaves slowly, and read other names and addresses, many of them. She wrote, Cassandra Merlin, and paused, then making a long dash, added simply, America, and handing back the book and pen, turned again to the window. Thank you. Is that all? said the maid, lingering. Yes, said Cassandra again. Then she laid her baby on the bed and began taking his night-clothing from her bag. "'How pretty he is! Shan't I help you unpack, ma'am?' Cassandra paused, looking dreamily before her as if scarcely comprehending. Then she said, "'Not tonight, thank you. Perhaps tomorrow.' The maid deftly piled the supper dishes, and taking them and the book with her, departed with a pleasant, "'Good night, ma'am.' In spite of her calmness, Cassandra lay wakeful and patient, and when at last she did sleep, it seemed to her she stood with her husband on her father's path, looking out under overarching boughs, 
upon blue distances of heaped-up mountain-tops, and David's flute-notes, silvery sweet, were raining down upon her. She woke to discover day was breaking, and a pealing of bells from some distant church tower was announcing the fact. She gathered her babe to her throbbing heart and thought, today she was to go out and meet her husband's people. How should she go? How should she conduct herself? Should she go at once, or wait until the afternoon? Why had she not written her name fully in the traveler's book? What mysterious foreboding had caught her fingers and stayed them at her maiden name? Was she afraid? When she arose, she found herself trembling from head to foot, and called for her breakfast before bathing and dressing her little son. The same pretty maid brought it, and came again while Cassandra bathed and nursed her baby to set the room to rights. "'Shan't I unpack your box for you now, ma'am?' And without waiting for a reply, she took out Cassandra's clothing, pausing now and then to admire and pet the lovely boy. Her simple friendliness pleased Cassandra, who was minded to ask some of the questions which were burdening her. "'When do people make visits here? In the morning or afternoon?' "'That depends, ma'am.' "'How do you mean? I'm a stranger in England, you know.' "'Yes, ma'am. If they make polite visits, they go about tea-time, ma'am. "'But if it's parish visits, or on business, or on people they know very well, "'they may go in the morning, ma'am.' "'And when is tea-time here?' "'Why, ma'am, everybody has their tea in the afternoon, along four or thereabouts, and sees their friends. "'Can I get a carriage here, do you know?' "'I can get a pony carriage, ma'am. "'We hires it when we needs it. "'Only we must speak for it early, or it may be taken. "'Oh, then will you please speak for it soon? "'I would like to have it.' "'Yes, ma'am. "'Will you drive yourself, ma'am, or shall I ask for a boy?' "'Oh, I don't know. "'I can drive, but they are gentle ponies, ma'am. "'Any one can drive them.' "'Yes, but I don't know the way.' "'Yes, ma'am. Where would you like to go, ma'am?' "'To Daneshead Castle.' The bright-cheeked maid opened her round eyes wider and looked at Cassandra with new interest. "'But, ma'am, that is quite far, though the ponies are smart, too. How far is it?' "'It's quite a bit away from here, ma'am. You'd have to start at two or thereabouts. I could take you myself, if mother would let me, and tell you all the interesting places, but... The girl looked at her shrewdly, a quickly withdrawn glance. "'That depends on how well acquainted you are there, ma'am. Maybe you'd like better to have a man drive and just let me go along to mind the baby for you?' "'Yes, I would,' said Cassandra gladly. "'Thank you. I'll run for the ponies now, ma'am.' Cassandra heard her boots clatter rapidly down the wooden stairs at the back of the house, and presently saw her dashing across the inn-yard, bareheaded and with her bare arms rolled in her apron. The girl's manner of receiving the statement that she wished to drive to the castle was not lost on Cassandra's sensitive spirit. She sat a moment, thoughtful and sad, then rose and set herself to prepare carefully for the visit. In the afternoon, then she might wear the silk gown and lovely hat. Once more she tried to arrange her hair as she saw other young women wear theirs, and again swept its heavy masses back loosely from her brow and coiled it low as her custom was. 
The landlady's daughter chattered happily as they drove. She held the baby on her knee, and he played with the blue bead she wore about her neck, while Cassandra sat with hands dropped passively in her lap, her body leaning a little forward, straight and poised, as if to move more rapidly along, her red lips parted as if listening and waiting, and her eyes courteously turning toward the places and objects pointed out to her, yet neither seeing nor hearing, except vaguely. Presently becoming aware that the chatter was about the family at Daneshead Castle, her interest suddenly awoke. About the old lord, how vast his possessions, how ancient the family, how neglected the castle had been ever since Lady Thring's death. Everything allowed to run down, even though they were so vastly rich. How different everything was now the parsimonious old lord was dead, and the new lord had come in, and there were once more ladies in the family. What a time since there had been a Lady Thring at Daneshead! How much Lady Laura was like her cousin Leon! How reckless she would be if her mother did not hold her with a firm hand! And so the chatter ran on. The girl enjoyed the distinction of knowing all about the great family, and enlightening this stranger from America, whose silent attention and occasional monosyllabic replies were sufficient to inspire her friendly efforts to entertain. Moreover, her curiosity concerning Cassandra and her errand, where she was evidently neither expected nor known, was piqued and lively, and she threw out many tentative remarks to probe, if possible, the stranger lady's thoughts. "'Have you ever seen Lord Thring? The new lord, I mean, ma'am?' "'Yes,' said Cassandra, simply, a chill striking to her heart to hear him mentioned thus. "'He's been out here directing the repairs himself, and getting the place ready for his mother and Lady Laura. But I never saw him. They say he's perfectly stunning. Quite the lord. Is he so very handsome, do you think?' "'Yes,' Cassandra looked away from the girl's searching eyes. They say he never has married, and that is fortunate too, for he has lived so long in America, and never expecting to come into the title, he might have married somebody his own set over here never could have received, and that would have been bad, wouldn't it? Cassandra turned and looked gravely at the girl. She wished to stop her, but could not think how to do it. She could not bear to hear her husband talked over in this way. They are tremendous swells. Lady Thring looks high for him, and well she may, for mother says he's worthy of a princess. He's that rich and high-bred, too, for all that he was only a doctor over in America. Mother says it's very fortunate he never married some common sort over there. They say Lady Thring wants him to marry Lady Geraldine Temple's daughter. She's a great beauty and has a pretty fortune in her own right, too. They'll be rich enough to entertain the king, and they may do it too some day. Cassandra sat still and cold. She could not stop the girl now. Lady Laura's coming out is to be next week, so his lordship must be home soon. They say it will be a very grand affair, and I am to see it all, for mother says she will have a maid, and I may go out there to serve, and I shall see all the decorations and the fine dresses. That will be fine, won't it, baby? She untied the blue beads and dangled them before the baby's eyes, and he caught at them and gurgled in baby glee. Cassandra sat silent, rigid and cold, unheeding the child or the girl, only vaguely hearing the chatter. A 
and that will be grand, won't it, baby? But he is a love, this boy. There is Daneshead Castle now, ma'am. You see it through the trees, but the grounds are so large we have to drive a good bit before we are there. The driver turned the pony's heads, and they scampered through a high stone gateway and along a smooth road which wound through a dense wood with green open spaces interspersed where deer were browsing. All was very beautiful and quiet and sweet, but Cassandra, sitting with wide open eyes, gravely beautiful, did not see it. To the girl, everything was delightful. She had not the slightest doubt that the American lady was very rich. That she traveled so simply and alone was nothing. They all did queer things, the Americans. She was obtusely unconscious that she had been speaking slightingly of them to one of themselves, and she talked on after the romantic manner of girls the world over, giving the gossip of the inn parlors as she listened to it evening after evening, where the affairs of the nobility were freely discussed and enlarged and commented upon with eager interest. What was spoken in her ladyship's chamber and Lady Laura's boudoir, their half-formed plans and aspirations, carelessly dropped words and unfinished sentences, quickly traveled to the housekeeper's parlor, to the servant's table, to the haunts of grooms and stable boys, to the farmer's daughters, and to the public rooms of the Queensdury Inn. Thus it was Cassandra heard tales of the brother and sister and mother of her David, and of him also. How it was said that once he was engaged to a rich tradesman's daughter, but had broken it off and gone to America against the wishes of all his family, and had become a common practitioner there to the disgust of all his relatives. And again, Cassandra felt that she had left a sweet and lovely world behind her to step into Vanity Fair. She tried to hold fast her faith in goodness and high purpose. She was sure, sure David had been moved by noble motives. Why should she not trust him now? Did this girl know him better than she, his wife? Yet, in spite of her valiant spirit, two facts fell like leaden weights upon her heart. David had not told his people that he had a wife, and they would be offended that he had tied himself to a common sort over there. This David, whom she loved, was so high above her in the eyes of all his relatives and perhaps even in his own. What, oh, what could she do? Might she still hold him in her heart? She could not walk in upon them now and betray him. Never, never. Her lips grew pale, and her head swam, but she sat still, leaning a little forward in the moving phaeton, her hands tightly clasped in her lap, and her babe unheeded at her side, until the red returned to her lips, and again burned in a clearly defined spot against the pallor of her cheek. She did not know that a strange, unearthly beauty was hers. A carriage met them, filled with gay people. She did not notice them, but they gazed at her, and turned to look again as they passed. "'I say you know,' said one of the men, as they whirled by. "'There! That was Lady Geraldine Temple in that carriage, and the young man who stared so hard is her son. They've been paying a visit, or maybe they've brought Lady Clara to stay a bit. They say both families are keen for the match. And why shouldn't they be? Oh, they'll entertain the king here some day, and then there'll be high times at Daneshead. An automobile flashed by them, and then another. There must be a party here today. Or likely it's visitors dropping in now it's getting towards tea time. 
It's all right, Mum," she added, as Cassandra stirred uneasily. It must be only visitors, or I would have heard of it. They're keeping open house now, though they don't go anywhere themselves yet. You see, it's a year since the deaths, so they could mourn them all at once, and not spin it too long. They had to wait a year before Lady Laura's coming out, rightly. Let the ponies walk now, driver. I beg pardon, ma'am. The girl had so taken possession of Cassandra, the baby, and the whole expedition, that she gave the order unthinkingly. Yes, let them walk, said Cassandra, and drew a long breath. She heard gay laughter, and caught sight through the trees of light dresses and wide plumed hats. Someone sat on the terrace at a table, wherein was shining silver. There, I said so. That's Lady Clara pouring tea. I say, but she's a beauty, isn't she? No, no, go to the front, driver. American ladies don't call at the side. There's an automobile there, ma'am. Then wait a moment. Don't be a stupid. Thus aided by the innkeeper's clever daughter, Cassandra at last made her entrance properly and was guided to the presence of David's mother, who had not joined her guests, having but just closed an interview with Mr. Stretton. As she saw Cassandra standing in the drawing-room waiting her, Lady Thring came graciously forward. The lovely August weather had tempted everyone out of doors, and the great room was left empty save for these two, David's mother and his wife. The beauty of otherworldliness which had infused Cassandra's whole being as she fought her silent battle during the long drive still enveloped her. If she could have followed her impulses, she would have held out both hands and cried, Take me and love me, I'm David's wife. But she would not. She must not. Her heritage of faith in goodness, both of God and man, kept her heart open and gave her power to think and act rightly in this her hour of terrible trial. Even as a little child, being behind the veil which separates the soul from God may, in its innocent prattle, utter words of superhuman wisdom. I am sorry if I have interrupted you when you have company, she said slowly. I am a stranger an American. Ah, you Americans are a happy lot, and may go where you please. Take this seat by the window. It is very warm. My son has been in America, but he tells us so little. We are none the wiser for that. About your part of the world. I knew him in America. That is why I called. Yes, the mother bent forward and regarded her curiously, attentively. He lived very near us. He did a great deal of good among the poor. She put her hand to her slender white throat, then dropped it again in her lap. Then, looking in Lady Thring's eyes, she said, I have seen your picture. I should have known you from that, but you are more beautiful. Oh, that can hardly be, my dear. It was taken many years ago, you know. Yes, he said so, his lordship. Only there we called him Dr. Thring. A shadow flitted over the mother's face. He was a practitioner over there, never in England. That is a pity. It is such noble work, but perhaps he has other things to do here. He has even more noble work than the practice of medicine. What does he do here? asked Cassandra in a low voice. 
he must take part in the affairs of government very ordinary men may study and practice medicine but unless men who are wise and are nobly born and bred make it their business to care for the affairs of their country the nation would soon be wrecked that is what saves england and makes her great i see cassandra sat silent then and lady thring waited expectantly for her errand to be declared curious about this beautiful young creature who had stepped into her home unannounced from out of the unknown yet graciously kindly and unhurried i think i know with us men are too careless they think it isn't necessary i suppose again she paused with parted lips as if she would speak on but could not with you men are too busy making money i'm told it is necessary to have a leisure class like ours oh cassandra caught her breath and smiled she was thinking of the silver pot her mother had enjoined her to take with her and why but we do think a great deal of family even the simplest of us care for that although we have no leisure class only the loafers i'm afraid you think it very strange i should come to you in this way but i i thought i would like to see dr thring again and when i heard he was not in england i thought i would come to you and bring the messages from those who loved him when he was with us but i mustn't stop now and take your time i'll write them instead only that wouldn't be like seeing him he stayed a whole year at our place and you come from canada oh no a long way from there my home is in north carolina oh indeed how very interesting that must have been when he was so ill then noticing cassandra's extreme pallor she begged her most kindly to come out on the terrace and have tea but she would not she felt her fortitude giving way and knew she must hasten but you must you know the heat and your long ride have made you faint i i'm afraid so it won't last wait then you must take a little wine you need it roused to sympathy lady thring left her a moment and returned immediately with a glass of wine which she held to her lips with her own hand there you will soon be better here is a fan it really is very warm indeed you must have tea before you go she took her passive hand and led her out on the terrace unresisting and again cassandra was minded to throw her arms about the lovely woman's neck who was so sweet and kind and sob on her bosom and tell her all but david had his own reasons and she would not do you stay long in england i am going to-morrow oh she exclaimed as they stepped out and she saw the number of elaborately dressed guests moving about and gaily chatting and laughing i can't go out there i'm a stranger it was a low melancholy wail as she said it and long afterward lady thring remembered that moaning cry i'm a stranger no no you are an american and very beautiful one come they will be glad to meet you give me your name again thank you but i must must go back suddenly with a cry my baby he is mine she swept forward with long swinging steps toward a group who were bending over a rosy-cheeked girl who was seated on the steps of the terrace with a child in her arms 
She was comforting him and cuddling and petting him, and those around her were exclaiming, as young girls will, Isn't he a dear? Oh, let me hold him a moment. There, he's going to cry again. No wonder, poor little chap. Oh, look at his curls, so cunning. Give him to me. Seeing his mother, he put up his arms to her and smiled, while two tears rolled down his round baby cheeks. I found him in the pony carriage with Hetty Giles, and he was crying so, and such a darling. I just took him away, the love, cried Laura. Why, we saw you yesterday at the Victoria. I could not pass him by, you remember. The baby, one beaming smile, nestled his face bashfully in his mother's neck and patted her cheek, glancing sidewise at his admirers through brimming tears, while Cassandra, her eyes large and pathetic, turned now on Laura, now on her mother, stood silent, quivering like one of her own mountain creatures brought to bay, but she was strengthened as she felt her baby again in her arms, and as she stood thus looking about her, everyone became silent, and she was constrained to speak. She did not know that something in her manner and appearance had commanded silence, something tragic, despairing. It was but for an instant, then, she turned to Lady Laura. "'Thank you for comforting him. I ought not to have left him. I never did before with strangers.' She tried to bid Lady Thring good-bye, but Laura again besought her to stop and have tea. "'Please do. I fairly adore Americans. I want to talk to you. I mean, to hear you talk.' Cassandra had mastered herself at last, and replied quietly, "'I, I don't guess I can stay. Thank you. You have been so kind.' Then she said to Lady Thring, "'Good-bye,' and moved away. Laura walked by her side to the carriage. "'I hope you'll come again some time and let me know you. "'You're right kind to say that. I shall never forget.' Then, leaning down from the carriage seat and looking steadily in Laura's warm, dark eyes, she added, "'No, I shall never forget. May I kiss you?' "'You sweet thing,' said the girl impulsively, and reaching up, they kissed. Cassandra said in her heart, For David, and was driven away. Laura found her mother standing where they had left her. She had been deeply stirred by the sight of Cassandra with the child in her arms. Not that beautiful mothers and lovely children were rare in England, but that except for the children of the poor, no little one like this had been in her own home or so near her in all the years of her widowhood. It was the sight of that strong mother love, overpowering and sweeping all before it, recognizing no lesser call, the secret and holy power that lies in the Christ Mother, for all periods and all peoples. She herself had felt it, and the cry that had burst from Cassandra's lips, My baby, he is mine! Tears stood in Lady Thring's eyes, and yet it was such a simple little thing. Mothers and babies, why, they were everywhere. She moved like a tragic queen, said Lady Clara. What was the matter? Nothing, only her baby had been crying. But wasn't he a love, said Lady Laura. I say, he was a perfect dear, said one and another. I don't care much for babies, said Lady Clara. 
They ought to be trained to stay with their nurses and not cry after their mamas like that. Fancy having to take such a child around with one everywhere, even in making a formal call, you know. Isn't it absurd? American women spoil their children dreadfully, I have heard. End of chapter 30. Read and recorded by Natalie Myers.